0: Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. This is the reading of God's word. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Uh, Well, as you know, we are in a series uh, uh, in the seven churches in Revelation, and we're looking at um, all of Jesus' letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And, uh, man, this is a pretty sad letter, Maybe uh, the saddest we've seen so far, I mean, just listen to that opening line again. Jesus says, I know you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Right? Imagine being a part of a church that everyone thinks is amazing, a church that all the other churches are trying to be like, and the first thing out of Jesus' mouth is you are dead. You think you're doing so well, but you have no idea how far you are from my heart. In fact, the only good thing Jesus has to say about this church in Sardis is that there are a few among them who aren't spiritually dead. Okay, that's a pretty uh, low bar when you think about what he said to the other churches we've looked at so far. And twice in this letter, he uses the phrase, wake up. Wake up. Right? Implying that this church is asleep. Listen to what he says in verse 2. He says, Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Translation Wake up because there's still work to be done. Wake up because your life is not through just yet. Wake up, your story is not finished. There's more God needs to do in you and through you. Why are you still sleeping? right? And in some ways, uh, this church in Sardis is the exact opposite of the church in Smyrna. Remember, uh, if you remember, Smyrna was a church marked by suffering and death. And yet Jesus looks at this church and he says, this church is alive and exactly where it needs to be. And then you have this church in Sardis that looks like it's alive and vibrant, but Jesus says, this church is dead. This church has lost its purpose. This church has lost its reason for existing. You know, when I think about the church here in America, I think about the church in Sardis. Right? We live in the land of stadium-sized mega churches. You know, some of these churches could give Disneyland a run for their money. Right? I visited a church once that had a merry-go-round in their church lobby. Okay? And then when you got there, uh, you could pick the style of worship you wanted for that week. Okay, so there were separate tents for different genres of worship. So you had a black gospel tent, you had a '90s rock tent, uh, you had a traditional tent, right? And they had groups for everything. They had a mom under forty moms under 40 group, a moms over 40 group, a hiking group, a yoga group, right? Uh, I mean, I'm sure some of you guys are like, give me the name of that church because I, you know, I want to go there. Um, but you see, like. And I'm not saying that there's something wrong with that church in particular, but what I'm saying is that we live in a country where churches are measured more by their size, by their programs, and their ability to wow you than they are by their conviction to the gospel, right? And you know what's really interesting? For all its hype, the American church is not the fastest growing church in the world right now. In fact, it's rapidly declining. Every study is showing that Americans are leaving the church at an alarming rate. Like, how is it possible that in a country where there are churches on every corner, where you have unlimited access to podcasts and books and Christian resources and sermons, how is it possible that in a, chur- in a country like that, the church is rapidly declining? And ironically, you know what's interesting? You know where the church is growing? In places you would never expect. In places like Iran, where you'd be lucky to find one Bible to share with your entire family. Where churches don't have beautiful buildings. They don't have multi-million dollar budgets. Where they're worshiping in small groups underground in constant fear for their life. And from the outside looking in, you would think that these are the churches that Jesus would be most worried about. And yet if this letter reveals anything, it's, it's quite the contrary, right? It's often the churches that look great on the outside that are actually spiritually withering on the inside. And what Jesus says to this church is pretty telling. He says in verse 3, remember therefore what you have received and heard, hold it fast, and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Now, you kind of have to understand the history of the city of Sardis to understand that line, I will come like a thief. Okay, so Sardis was once a very powerful city. It used to be the capital of the ancient Lydian kingdom, and the city was built on the top of this mountain. And basically, everyone said that this city, because of where it was built, was impenetrable. Like, you know, it was just a military, it was militarily um, impossible to conquer. Well, believe it or not, twice in Sardis' history, this city was invaded by sneak attack. Okay, so this supposedly unconquerable fortress was brought down twice. And what Jesus is saying to this church is, if you don't wake up, you risk suffering the same fate as the city you live in, a city that looked good on the outside but was prone to attack. Um, years ago, uh, author Vance Havner, he wrote about the five steps toward the death of a movement of God. And and honestly, this paradigm could be applied to almost any human institution. Um, so if you're a CEO uh, of a company or, you know, you've ever uh, led an organization, this paradigm could, could actually explain the five steps toward the death of that organization. And this is what Vance Havner says. He says, the five steps are man, movement, machine, monument, and then mausoleum. Okay, let me explain those. He says, every movement starts with a man or woman responding to his or her God-given calling, right? It always starts with someone desiring to do something great, to bring meaning into the world in some way, shape, or form, right? This is how all great movements in history have begun. If you think about the successful companies out there, think about the Apples, the Googles, the Facebooks, right? All started with a person or a few people attempting to bring something unique into the world, and all of these companies birthed movements, right? Well, what Vance Havner says is that these movements as they begin to grow, inevitably become machines because often with growth, you need to organize, you need to formalize. And what ends up happening is that as these companies and organizations begin to grow is that you start to lose that initial passion. You start to lose that initial mission, that initial purpose and that meaning. And ultimately all of it starts to become drowned out by the work by the need to expand, the need to get bigger. Well, Havner then says that if you're not careful, all machines end up becoming monuments, lifeless objects that just celebrate the past, right? They're always thinking about the good old days, right? When things were better and less complicated. this nostalgia, right? With no vision for the future. And then he says, slowly but surely, every monument becomes a mausoleum a big, cold, empty place for dead people. Well, this is what ha- has happened to the church in Sardis. And if we're honest, this is what's happening to the evangelical church in America. And, and I actually, to be honest, I like—I actually think we're past the machine stage and I think we're moving into the monument stage where, where churches have lost their saltiness, where churches have forgotten why they exist. why You know, churches are just kind of there, they have buildings and they're kind of surviving, but they have zero impact on their city and the culture in which they live. And I would say that I think we can actually apply this paradigm not only to churches, but to our individual lives as well. How many of us find ourselves waking up on Monday morning just going through the motions? Like We, for- we forgot why we're going to work in the first place. We're just running errands. No real sense of purpose, just blasé about everything. The things that once got us excited don't do anything for us anymore. We don't remember why we became teachers. You know, we don't remember why we got into the entertainment industry. Why we studied so hard and spent so much money on med school to become doctors, right? Where we're just machines now making money, surviving, just existing, or worse, We've become like monuments. We're just constantly looking back on our youth, looking back on the good old days, feeling like our best days are behind us, feeling like we've lost our usefulness to God and to people. And to all of you who are in that boat, I want to say, wake up. Wake up. There is unfinished business. Your story isn't over, but you need to open your eyes to see what God is doing in your midst. And I'm not saying you need to find a more meaningful career path or do something more special with your life because you see, this is exactly the trap we fall into, right? We're constantly looking for, th- for the things that are shiny on the outside, but leave us just as unfulfilled and dead on the inside. What I'm saying is, Open your eyes to see what God is already doing in and through you at this very moment. Like, what if we started to see our daily interactions with our kids not as menial tasks or throwaway conversations? What if we started to see those conversations as opportunities to love our children with the sacrificial love of Christ? What if we saw our studies? you know, as more than just completing assignments or taking exams, but as preparation to pursue the calling God has placed on our lives? What if we saw our jobs as more than a nine to five that pays the bills, but as a gift given to us in order to serve those around us and seek the good of our city? Um, uh, David Brooks, uh, he's one of my favorite authors, um, and he has a great book called The Second Mountain. Okay, And, and in it, he talks about those people you meet every so often who just radiate joy. And I'm sure like you can think about, you can think of some people in your life who just radiate joy. And and there's just this life that emanates from them, right? Wherever they go, they're just this bright light. They know why they were put on this earth, you know, at whether it's at work and their small group eating with friends at a restaurant. There's just This life that emanates from their presence, right? And David Brooks in this book, he says that these are people who have climbed what he calls the second mountain. And he says that most people start off seeing their life as a single mountain. The goals of this first mountain are the ones that our culture endorses. Become successful. Make your mark. Seek personal fulfillment. And for those who have climbed this mountain, it looks great to a watching world, right? But he says that something always happens when you get to the top of that mountain. He says these people look around and they find the view unsatisfying. And they essentially realize that this whole time they thought they were living, they were really just zombies following a certain societal blueprint that essentially kind of programs them to live for themselves. And he says some people get stuck climbing that mountain some people die trying to get to the top of that mountain. But he says there are a few who look around to discover a bigger mountain, a second mountain. And he says on this mountain, the meaning and purpose of life moves from self-centered to other-centered. On this second mountain, people discover the things that are truly worth wanting, not the things other people tell them to want. On this mountain, they find ultimate fulfillment and joy. They're like the few people left in Sardis who Jesus says have not soiled their clothes. Uh, Yesterday uh, was the NBA Hall of Fame induction ceremony. And um, obviously this one was particularly special because of Kobe. And um, I watched all the speeches last night. And um, when you watch these Hall of Fame ceremonies, uh, you see a common thread. Like, yes, you talk about a player's individual accomplishments and what they did on the court, uh, but you realize that what makes these players all-time greats is when their impact begins to transcend their own achievements and inspire those around them, right? It's what made Kobe great. And yesterday, uh, I was watching Tim Duncan's speech. And Tim Duncan, uh, if you don't know, uh, was a power forward who played for the San Antonio Spurs uh, under arguably one of the greatest coaches, if not the greatest coach of all time, and Greg Popovich, okay? And during his speech, uh, Tim Duncan addresses Coach Pop. And I thought it was really interesting because the two of them together won five NBA championships, okay, which is like an unthinkable feat for most. They were one of the most legendary duos in NBA history. And you know what I thought was really interesting? He didn't bring any of that up when he addressed him. He didn't talk about the championships they won together. He didn't, talk, he didn't really talk much about the game at all. You know what he talked about? He talked about how after he was drafted, Coach Pop came to visit him and sat with his friends and his family and spent time talking to his dad. He said that's what he remembers. And then he said, thank you for teaching me about basketball. But beyond that, thank you for teaching me that it's not all about basketball. It's about what's happening in the world. It's about your family. In other words, he was saying, thank you for teaching me that the metrics other people use to define greatness, that it's not all about that. And this is what Jesus is trying to communicate here right, to this church in Sardis that looks good on the outside, but is spiritually dead. It's what he says in Mark 8 when he says, what good is it to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? Now, you might be asking, you know, well, okay, what does a life that is fully alive look like practically? Okay, like, you know, because tell me, I want to climb this second mountain. What does that life look like? And I think the answer lies in the way Jesus introduces himself in this letter. If you notice, at the very beginning, he says, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Okay, what is he talking about there? I thought there was only one God. What is he talking about when he talks about holding the seven spirits? Well, in the book of Revelation, numbers are always used symbolically. Okay, and the number seven is always used to mean the fullness of something. It always is used to mean absolute perfection. And so when Jesus says he holds the seven spirits of God, he's saying he's the fullness of the spirit of God personified. And so in verse 4, when he says, they will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. He's saying the way you will know whether or not you are living on the first mountain or the second mountain is whether or not you are walking in the fullness of the Spirit. And the Apostle Paul in Galatians 5 tells us what walking in the Spirit looks like. And I want to read this whole section from Galatians 5 to you guys. He says this, Galatians 5, uh, verse 16. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you are directed by the Spirit, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, Jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What Paul is saying here is that walking in step with the Spirit is unmistakable because it looks like love. It looks like joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And if your life is producing these fruit, it doesn't matter what your life looks like on the outside doesn't matter if you're succeeding or failing by the world standards. Jesus says, you're alive. But in the same way, if your life is not producing these fruit, he's saying it doesn't matter what your life looks like on the outside. He says, you are dead. Um, You know, I am uh, one of those people, um, I don't know why, but uh, who easily fall asleep while I drive. Okay? So bad and so dangerous, I know. Um, And, uh, you know, the... I, I don't know why, if I'm tired and you put me like behind a wheel, like is bad news. Okay. Uh, the first car accident I ever got into was actually when I was a senior in high school because I fell asleep at the wheel. And, um, you know, there are uh, those people, you know, some, some of my friends, they can like will their bodies into not falling asleep at the wheel. But for some reason, uh, if I'm tired, it's impossible for me. Like I've tried everything. You know, blasting music, uh, eating sunflower seeds. I was told that works. Uh, you know, practicing accents, you know, and, and you would think, right? That like once like sometimes, you know, when you're driving and you have one of those jolty moments, like you would think that you would be super alert after that, right? Because you know, you have a close call and you're like, Oh my gosh, I can't fall asleep. But without fail, give it a couple minutes and, and your eyes just start getting heavy again and and You know, uh, there was a time, I don't even know how this happened, but, um, I played a show in New York and I was coming, driving home back to Philly from New York and, um, must've fell asleep. And somehow, I don't even know how I ended up at a rest stop in New Jersey. Okay. My car was like, you know, like parked weirdly in this empty parking lot. I mean, thank God it was like three in the morning cause I woke up and, and my car was out of battery and I was just sitting there. And so I had to actually like go down to the main street, wave down a stranger and you know, the stranger thankfully jump-started my engine and uh, you know, and I was like all kinds of disillusioned, like disoriented. I had no idea where I, where I was. And and in some ways, I think this is like the perfect illustration of our spiritual lives, right? We just can't stay awake, you know, in a, in a cultural moment when Christians need to be more alert than ever, right? In a moment when Christians need to live with more purpose than ever, I feel like so many of us are falling asleep at the wheel and we're losing sight of our destination so much so that I'm sure many of us probably don't even realize how we ended up where we are right now. And self-help and religion will tell you, just try harder, just do these five steps and you'll be able to unlock your purpose and live a more fulfilling life. But we all know that's not how life works because we know that by our very nature, we are prone to falling asleep. We are prone to becoming like the Christians in Sardis. And it reminds me of the story in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus, on the night before he has to go to the cross, he asks his closest friends to stay up and pray for him. In his darkest moment, Jesus has one request, that his best friends stay awake for him. They had one job, and they couldn't do it. These guys, who spent every waking moment with Jesus for three years, watching him heal the sick, perform miracles, cast out demons, even they couldn't do it. And if even the most faithful among us can't stay awake, what hope do you and I have? Right? But friends, this is why Jesus came. He came to give purpose to people who had forgotten what their purpose was. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And the way he did it was by dying on a cross. I want you to think about that. Jesus was put on this earth to die so that you and I, who were dead in our sins, would be made alive in him. That's why Ephesians 5 says, Wake up, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. In other words, the power to wake up and to walk in the Spirit doesn't come from us. That power can only be found in Christ. And it's because of his finished work on the cross, not because of our faithfulness, but because of his faithfulness, That he's able to say here in this letter, I will never blot out your name from the book of life. Friends, I want you to know this morning, if there's anything you can leave with today, it's that God isn't finished writing your story. There's so much he has for you if you would just wake up and open your eyes to see it. And so this morning, may we all take hold of this grace offered to us in Christ. It's the only thing that's going to fuel us to live a second mountain kind of life, a life submitted to his will for his kingdom and his glory. Let's pray. God, we come humbly before you uh, this morning, and I know that... um, you know, for many of us uh, here on this Zoom chat joining us today, uh, we feel like this church in Sardis. You know, on, on the outside, we might it might feel like we're you know we're thriving on the outside. It may feel like um, you know we're we're fully living, but on the inside, we feel like corpses. We feel spiritually dead. We feel apathetic. We've lost our zeal for life. We've lost our purpose. And I know that for many of us, we, we, we're going to wake up tomorrow morning and wonder, what is the point of all of this? And I just pray for our church um, in this moment. And I pray the words of this letter that we would wake up to see that there's unfinished business in our lives. There are people you have placed under our care. There are resources that you have placed under our care. There is a city that you have placed under our care. That if we would just wake up and see what you're already doing, we would be able to unlock really the reason why we exist as individuals, but also as a church. So God, I pray that... um, we would not be content with climbing the first mountain. I pray that we would not be content living a first mountain kind of life, living a life solely for ourselves, living a life that culture tells us to live. But I pray, God, with the help of your Spirit, I pray, God, with the help of your grace and your strength, that we would begin to climb the second mountain, begin to live a life for others, live a life to glorify you, to live a life in which we use all the things that you've given us, all the finances, the resources, to steward them for your kingdom. God, thank you for this church. Thank you that we have this community to lean upon in these crazy times. I pray that even as we get ready to reopen, as we gather back together in person, I pray that you would remind us of why we exist I pray that we would never become a church that just looks shiny on the outside but is spiritually dead on the inside. I pray that we would never lose our sense of being a movement of God uh, in the city of Los Angeles. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for this word. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.